Acts 10.9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, eat a kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, Why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, Four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon at Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. You have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dr. Martin Luther King said in one of his many famous speeches, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Now, I find that to be a really good statement, both because of its startling beauty as Dr. King was wont to put together amazing phrases, but also because it reflects the truth of the way God has made this world, the truth of the scripture. The scriptures teach 
that part of what it means to be a human is that in some senses, we're all in this together. We are caught together, as Dr. King said, in an inescapable network of mutuality. That means that we all have responsibility to treat others with kindness and with equity and with compassion. Jesus himself said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor, those who live in proximity to you as yourself. Sadly, in our particular country and in our particular time, for a significant majority of the history of this country, that has not been the case when it comes to racial issues. Former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice once said that racism is the original birth defect of this country. And it's to that topic that we turn our attention this morning. As we continue in this series called Justice, I want you to remember what we're doing here. We're thinking about how the gospel changes everything, including the way we think about significant social issues, issues of justice in our day. And remember the way that we have defined justice. Justice is God's action that promotes the equality and flourishing of all humanity. And because God is a God of justice, his people, those who love God and follow God, are also called, in approximate sense, as best as we are able, to pursue justice in our lives. So given that definition of justice, that it is the promoting of equality and flourishing of all humanity, racism, racial hostility, clearly falls into the category of injustice. Now, I imagine that everyone here this morning uh, would agree with that statement, that racism is unjust, and yet this topic is, I think, very obviously, and hopefully obviously to you as well, a controversial topic. We've tackled this before here at Christ Church, and we're going to tackle it again this morning. And so here's how I want to summarize the main idea. Here's the main point that I want you to take home with you today. Racial hostility is one of the great injustices of our culture and can be addressed by the power of the gospel. Racial hostility is one of the great injustices of our culture and can be addressed with the power of the gospel. Three points for you. First, racial hostility is a result of human sin. Racial hostility is a result of human sin. In fact, it's one of the chief results of human sin. It's one of the main ingredients that make up the brokenness of the world that we live in. That is part of what the Apostle Paul is getting at in that Ephesians chapter 2 passage that Hank read for us just a minute ago. Paul is speaking in this chapter, especially in verses 1 through 10, about how the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ reconcile man to God. The vertical relationship that we all have with God is made new again through Jesus. Verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, he talks about that. And then in verse 11, all the way through verse 22, Paul says that the death of Jesus also reconciles horizontal relationships, formerly hostile relationships that people, groups, and individuals have with one another can be reconciled through Jesus. That's what Paul means in verse 14 when he writes, He, that is Jesus, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That word hostility is a very strong word that Paul is using here intentionally to apply to Jew-Gentile relations in the first century in which Paul lived. 
Make no mistake about it, that is what Paul has in mind. Now, there was religious friction, there was political friction, and there was undoubtedly racial friction between Jews and Gentiles in Paul's day. And so what he's saying here is that the gospel of Jesus is intended to produce, among other things, racial reconciliation. And if that is true, it must be the case that racial hostility is a big problem in God's eyes. Racial hostility is a significant injustice in God's world that he wants to remedy. And this is not just a side note in the Bibles either. It's actually one of the major threads of the story of the scripture. I think you could make a very strong case that we see the beginning of racial division right after the fall in Genesis 4, but you definitely see it in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel. Remember that story? The people of the world are building this idolatrous tower in honor and to glorify man and their ingenuity and technological advancements. And God breaks down the tower and splits the peoples of the world into different groups and divides their languages. And the people separate into different parts of the world. And directly beneath the surface of the text is the idea that these people aren't just separating because they speak different languages now. They're also separating because there's an inevitable ethnic tribal hostility that arises very early in the story of humanity as a result of sin. In Genesis 12, the very next chapter, God calls Abraham. And one thing he says to Abraham when he makes his covenant with him is that every nation of the world, all different races, all different tribes will be blessed through you. By the way, we see in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the anti-Babel. We see language no longer dividing mankind, but language again uniting mankind as the work of Jesus begins to be played out on the world stage. So you see racism and God seeking to address it early in Genesis. You see racism in Exodus. Remember when the people of God are enslaved by the Egyptians. There's a lot going on there. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There's undoubtedly metaphorical stuff happening there for the deeper spiritual realities of our lives. But there was racial enslavement on the part of the Egyptians towards the Israelites. And God saw their oppression and God acted in justice and in mercy to deliver them. You see in the book of Esther, an attempt by the prime minister of Persia, Haman, an attempt at ethnic cleansing to wipe out all of the Jewish people from the land, although they are in exile. And the story is a remarkable story about how Esther and Mordecai heroically act, and God uses them to save that particular people in that particular time. We see the Jewish people in the New Testament, in Jesus' day, acting again and again with racial superiority and prejudice towards Gentiles. And Jesus comes in part to show the true heart of God. That's why he approaches the Samaritan woman in John 4. And he speaks to her tenderly and compassionately and calls her to repentance. That was something that a Jewish rabbi would have never done in that day, partly because she was a female, partly because she was a foreigner. She was a half-breed Samaritan, is what the Jewish people thought. But Jesus approaches her with his love. You see in Luke chapter 10, in the parable of the great, of the good Samaritan, when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? He tells that story. 
And he says that the Samaritan is good because he was willing not just to cross religious lines, but to cross racial lines to love and care for his neighbor. And you see also in this story in Acts 10, in the story of Peter and Cornelius, another example of God's desire to address racial hostility. Peter is given a vision by God. God shows Peter that now all things are clean. And Peter doesn't even have a category for this. Verse 17 tells us that he's perplexed. But the Spirit moves him along. He says, Peter, you can eat a ham sandwich. That's fine. Have bacon. Eat all you want. Everything is clean now. And I want you to go hang out with this guy, Cornelius, who's a God-fearing Gentile. And Peter's like, I don't know about this. But he obeys and he follows. And in verse 28, I don't know if you noticed when Hank was reading, Peter actually says when he enters Cornelius' house, you yourselves know how unlawful, how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with any of you, with anyone from another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. It's illegal. It's written into the law that Jews can't talk to or associate with non-Jews. That's racism without question. But Peter follows the Spirit. He preaches the gospel. The Spirit comes down and works conversion. And what's Peter's conclusion? Verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Here's one thing that the Bible again and again tells us that sin does. Sin causes you to run towards people you believe are like you and value what you value and to run away from people that you believe are not like you. Pastor John Lynn put it like this. He says, we tend to be drawn to people who uncritically reflect back everything we value about ourselves. And we tend not to gather around people who fail to reflect back what we value about ourselves. And I would argue that racism is perhaps the clearest example of that principle in all of human history. Racism is the self-perpetuating manifestation of the way the human heart inherently operates apart from God's grace. The human heart inherently says, I am good enough. I am better. I can earn my way. I and my people are superior. My way is the only way and my way is the best way. That's especially true of those who are in the majority as the Jews were in first century Jerusalem in Jesus's day and in Peter's day. So I, what I want for you this morning is to see and feel the truth, no matter what color of skin you have, that racism is a prime example of how sin brings disunity and division. So racism is completely contrary to what Jesus wants of his people in the gospel. Racism is a manifestation of the pretended superiority of our own sinful hearts. So racism and racial hostility is a result of sin. Second, racial hostility is a historic and current injustice in our society. Given that racial hostility is a result of sin, I want to take a few minutes and I want to speak to you about how racial hostility is a current problem, a current injustice in our culture. And listen, listen, I love you. I'm not attempting here to be controversial, I promise. I'm not trying to be incendiary in any way. I'm interested not at all 
and even hinting at like policy proposals or anything like that. That's not what I'm trying to do. I want us to see though, and I want us to understand that this is not something that we have just sort of avoided when it comes to how sin affects humanity. Because until we see the injustices manifesting themselves in our worlds, we can't work towards the justice needed with the power of the gospel and with the presence of the Spirit. So I want to just lay out three ways real quickly in which racial hostility, racism, is a current injustice, okay? So stick with me, and when you feel that sense in your mind and your heart saying, well, I disagree with this, just tell it to be quiet just for 20 minutes, and you can send me an email afterwards, okay? I'd love to talk to you. Seriously, I would. I might delete your email, though, and then call you. Okay, so first, racism. Racism is a historic injustice in America. Now listen, that should go without saying. But I'm saying it, and here's why. Because history matters. That is, the past helps write the present. And we can't escape our history, even if we want to. To ignore our history would be foolish. And the history of racial injustice in the United States continues to haunt our country. And we can't simply pretend that our past doesn't matter in shaping our present. So just real quick, a history lesson. For the first hundred years of our constitutional republic's history, millions of African-American people were enslaved by white people. 12.6% of the population in 1860 were slaves. We fought a war over that. And then for the next 100 years, the reality was segregation and Jim Crow. And it wasn't until the mid-1960s that we saw what could be considered some progress on this front. And that's just black-white hostility. I'm not even talking about all the other potential racial hostilities that exist. And it's worth thinking about that this occurred in many of your lifetimes. This is not distant history. And it's important to know that history takes time to see change. And so we should not think, if we're black or if we're white or if we're Asian or if we're Hispanic, we should not think that post-Martin Luther King, post-civil rights, the racial problem in our country just went poof and disappeared. I experienced a powerful illustration of that just this summer. My family and I were on our way to New Mexico on vacation, and we stopped uh, to visit my dad in the town of Crane, Texas. Any of you ever heard of Crane, Texas? No hands. I'm not surprised. It's a town in West Texas of 4,000 people, and uh, my dad's a pastor there, and we stayed the night with my dad, and Crane has one stoplight. They're proud of that one stoplight, and two distinct sides of town. And we were driving around. My dad was showing us the town. And, and as we were driving in one part of town, my dad said, you see that over there? And you could look over and see this little wall that had been toppled and disheveled and broken down largely. He said that wall was built in the 50s to keep the black people on that side of town and the white people on this side of town. And guess which side of town had the better schools and the nicer homes and running air conditioning and all the amenities that we could want if you have to live in Crane. I don't even need to say it, do I? Now, the wall had been toppled down, and so this week I was remembering that, and I asked my dad, I called him, I said, when was that wall toppled? When did that wall finally come down? Can you do some research and find out? And do you know when? 1986. That wall was up until 1986. That's in my lifetime. 
So racial injustice is a historic example, a historic reality in America. Okay, that's the first thing we need to understand. And that impacts our present. Second, the issue or the injustice of racism exists today in individuals. There still exists overt and obvious racism. Now, we all think Charlottesville, right? And that's appropriate. But there still exists all kinds of much subtler forms of racial hostility. Not just white people being racist towards black people or Hispanic people either, but all people groups are guilty of this, I would argue, because all people groups are guilty of sin. And we need to admit that we can be prone to this as well. Here's what happens anytime I start talking about this topic with people. And I've done this in my life many times. The first thing people say is, I'm not a racist, but... I'm not a racist. We immediately want to say, no, 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 I'm not a racist. Can I just ask you to stop for a second and think about that? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans chapter 3. All of us are sinners. Even if we've been saved by Jesus, the old man still has residence in us. Racism is a sin. Therefore, perhaps it follows that all of us, to some degree or another, are guilty of racial prejudice. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, anyone who's had an angry thought towards another person in his heart is guilty of breaking that commandment. Should we really think that we've never been guilty of racial prejudice, that we're not racist? Should we really immediately adopt a very defensive posture towards that accusation? I just want to tell you a couple of personal examples. Just, I'm not trying to kind of air all my dirty laundry, but this is something that I've recently, in recent years, been more and more convicted of. And I want you to understand and believe that you are not above the possibility of being guilty of racism. Many times in my life, um, I've pulled up next to a stoplight, driving my car, and next to me at the stoplight, a car will pull up. It's a big black Escalade with like tricked out rims, you know, huge rims, tinted windows, bass, you know, the guy's bumping Jay-Z, loud music, bass blaring through the speaker, and he rolls down his window, and it's a black dude, he's got dreads, he's listening to the music loudly, and you know what I have thought? Many times, I've thought, that guy's got to be a drug dealer. There's no way a guy like that should be driving a $75,000 car. It's not, I'm not like intentionally saying, I'm better than that black person. It just crops up from within me. Another experience that I've had, this is 10 years ago, I was in a presbytery committee meeting. And in this presbytery committee meeting, we were talking about examining various candidates for ordination. And our ordination trials in the PCA are rather intense. We ask you all kinds of questions about the Bible and about theology. And on this particular meeting, we were about to examine two young Hispanic men to be ordained into ministry. And there was a long conversation in that room with a bunch of white people and a few Hispanic people about why we should go easier on this Hispanic guy. And it wasn't because of a language barrier. It was just straight up insidious and subtle racism. And by God's grace, one of the Hispanic brothers in our presbytery said, hey guys, do you realize what's going on here? Because we didn't realize it. And I'm not saying that it's just white people that are guilty of this either. It's not. All people groups are guilty of racial prejudice. And all individuals are prone towards racial prejudice. Listen to what Jesus says. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, 
out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Mark chapter seven. We need to be willing to admit the gospel needs to change every part of our lives, even the sins that we immediately get defensive when we're confronted about. Racism is a historic justice in America. Injustice, it's a his, the injustice of racism exists today in individuals. And thirdly, I want to tell you that the injustice of racism exists today in structures. Listen, it's simply not true to say that racism is no longer an issue because we aren't hosing down black people in the streets and sicking dogs on them. Racism extends to the fabric of our society because society is not just like a collection of individuals. Society is structural in the way it's comp composited. As King said, we're all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality and we should be aware of this. And I just want to give you two brief examples about how you can see structural racism in our country today. Okay, and you might not like it, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because I used to not like this, and then I read a bunch of books about it and had my mind changed. One is in the criminal justice system. Listen to this. In 2006, one in every 14 black men in America was incarcerated, compared to one in every 106 white men. 90% of all prisoners are either Hispanic or black. The vast majority of those imprisoned are for drug possession crimes, usually marijuana. In a study done in the year 2000, it was shown that in 28 states, blacks and Hispanics are admitted to prison on drug charges at a rate 25 to 27 times greater than that of white men. Now, we might answer that data by saying, well, that must mean that black people and Hispanic people smoke a lot more weed than white people. The only problem with that is it's demonstrably false. In every study done, and there have been many in recent years, it's evident that the majority of drug users and the majority of drug dealers nationally are white. Even though 75% of all people imprisoned for drug charges are either black or Latino. Now, I would encourage you to read books about this. You, don't, you haven't become like a crazy left-wing liberal if you've read a book about this. The New Jim Crow is a book by Michelle Alexander where abundant, overwhelming data is provided on this issue. It's an example of structural racism in our country. A second example is economic inequality. Now, I'm really going to make you mad, but I'm going to keep going. What do I mean by that? Well, here's some statistics. Hispanics and African-Americans are three times more likely to fall below the poverty line. They're substantially less likely to own a home than a white American. And their median household wealth is only 8% that of white people. And for example, the median net worth for a college-educated white male by the time he's 30 years old, median net worth, college-educated white person by 30, $20,000. The median net worth with all of the variables the exact same. College educated black male, age 30, $175. The reason that white evangelical Christians have typically given for those stats is honestly, well, that's because of black culture or Hispanic culture. It's because of laziness or lack of a good work, work ethic. It's a lack of motivation 
And they refuse to admit, typically, the idea that a lack of equal opportunity or discrimination might play some role in this. In in fact, white evangelicals are actually more likely than any other subset of the American population to believe that the reasons for these statistics are purely individualized and not structural. And I simply would suggest, humbly and lovingly, that we reevaluate and consider the reality that racial injustice seeps into the fabric of many of the structures of our society. Listen, friends, it's possible for you to not be a racist and not know a single racist, and yet that doesn't negate the reality of racism in our country. Okay? So racial injustice is a current and a historic issue in the United States. Okay? So I want us to see that the problem goes deep here. Our history and our current climate are affected with hostility on a racial level. Now, I don't have the solutions to systemic racial injustice. And don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. Don't hear me saying, well, the government needs to... I'm not saying that. I don't have all the solutions for it. I'm just asking that we see its reality. But we're very limited in our ability to actually invoke change. So what can we do? Well, I'm a pastor. And it's my job as a pastor to tell you what the Bible teaches. And what the Bible teaches is this. You can work for racial justice in your world, in the small corner of the universe in which you live, primarily by believing and applying the gospel of Jesus. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2. That's his exact point. He's teaching us that through the work of Jesus, God is about the business of making one new humanity in the place of two, therefore making peace. The idea here is it's something radically new. It's not like the difference between like a 2018 Ford Explorer and a 1998 Ford Explorer. That's new, but it's not totally different. It's like the difference between a Ford Model T and a horse and buggy. It's that kind of different. It's that kind of new. What is the new thing? It's that in the gospel, God makes a new humanity. People of every different color of skin and every different language that were formerly hostile to one another. And this new humanity is defined by one thing. It's defined by peace. Peace is a word that Paul uses four times in five verses here. The gospel brings peace between us and God, and it brings peace between us and one another. Paul tells us that through the work of Jesus, the gospel, peace comes. So how? How does the gospel create peace between men and women, between races? How does it unite those who were formerly divided? How does it erase hostility? How can it move us forward into racial reconciliation? Well, the gospel creates peace, verse 16, by killing the hostility. Listen, okay, listen. On the cross, in the death of Jesus Christ, God is punishing all of our sin against him. And, and God is punishing all of our sin against one another. He is doing away with the hostility that exists in us vertically and horizontally through the death of Jesus. On the cross, Jesus became hostility. He became Enmity, legally, 
on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he were guilty for all the violence and anger and disunity of all of us. So the gospel destroys the hostility and the enmity and the disunity of racism because it tells us that Jesus takes all the wickedness and Jesus takes all the guilt and all the evil of racism on himself in the cross and suffers for it. He bears the wounds of racism himself. He bears the reproach of division and ethnic fighting himself. On the cross, Jesus is divided so that we can be united. He is torn apart so that we can be brought together. Jesus is cast out so that we can all be brought in. Jesus suffers indignity so that we can regain dignity. Jesus bears separation so that we can come together. And it's by believing what happened at the cross that we actually change in the way we relate to others, even those with whom there has been racial hostility. And here's how it works. Listen, the cross shows you two things, <laughs> okay? It shows you, first, that you are just as deserving of condemnation and separation from God as every other person, no matter their race or their language or their ethnicity. And it shows you, second, that you are just as welcome into God's family by faith and into God's kingdom as every other person, no matter their race or language or ethnicity. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we all become like androgynous. It doesn't mean our diversity disappears. It doesn't mean you're not any longer affected by Jewish culture or Gentile culture. You're still who you are, and yet you're a part of a more fundamental family and identity, a beautiful diversity that has come into the unity of the Godhead. So ultimately, the answer to all injustice is found in the gospel. And that's what can be a way forward for us in our time as well. As people trusting the gospel, we can experience the reconciliation that Jesus brings in a world of hostility. We can pray that our church will be a place where one new man in the place of two is a reality. We can do this by loving one another, by listening to one another, by celebrating the gospel with one another in humility. The church can be an island of peace in an ocean of hostility. And so I want to close with just a couple of brief suggestions for you, okay? Tim Keller says, The job of the church is to show the world that people who cannot live in love and unity outside of Christ can do so in Christ. So what can we do? Proximate justice, remember that issue. What can we do to address this issue in our own lives? I want to give you a couple of thoughts. First, I want you to listen and read. And you're like, what? Is there a Netflix show about this? Well, yeah, probably. So look at Netflix if that's your thing. But listen and read. Uh, there's a lot of good books about this. Will just told me this week about a great YouTube series called Race and the Church. A number of PCA leaders participate in that. You can check that out and watch it. It's really, really good. I already mentioned a book called The New Jim Crow. I'd mentioned one other one. It's called Divided by Faith. It's by a Christian sociologist named Michael Emerson who teaches at Rice University. Unbelievably helpful book. Those are just a couple of suggestions that I would suggest for you to read and think about this issue. And you knew I was going to say that, read, right? But here's something else you can do. You can befriend people who are different than you. 
Are you, and you're like, Luke, are you saying that I should like go make friends with people who are different color skins just because they're different color skins? And I'm saying, yes. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Well, that's awkward. Yeah, I know it's awkward. I'm not saying, hey, get your token black friend and your token white friend, your token Hispanic friend. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in, in the one new humanity, part of growing is intentionally seeking relationships with people who have a different background and a different culture and a different color of skin than you. That's a good thing for you to do. And I think that that should be a part of your intentional seeking of justice and mercy in the world. Let me close with this story. I did this a couple of years ago. I've got a really good friend in the city. His name's Russell. And he's a pastor in a church in San Antonio. And he's an African-American guy. And uh, we were at some pastor's meeting one day, probably four years ago, and having lunch. And I sat down next to him, and we were all talking. There's 25 guys there. And we all exchanged our business cards. And these are the sort of things where you go to once, and you're like, yeah, that, I'm glad these guys are here, but probably never going to see these guys again, except for these sorts of deals. But Russell and I sat by each other, and we talked, and we kind of hit it off. And so I decided I'm going to call him or send him an email and see if he wants to get lunch. So I sent Russell an email. This is like probably three months later. And I'm like, hey, Russell, do you remember me? I was a white guy next to you. Um, let's, can we get lunch? And uh, he's like, sure. So we went to McAllister's, a uh, very white place to go, by the way. I found out later. We went to McAllister's, and, uh, and I sat down with Russell, and we're talking. And he asked me at one point, he's like, hey, Luke, of all the guys in that room, did you send all those guys emails about getting lunch? And I was like, no. And he's like, well, why'd you email me? And I was like, oh, crud. <laughs> well, man, I, I emailed you because I love having other pastor friends in the city. I think that's valuable. And to be honest, I also emailed you because you're an African-American dude and I'm a white dude. And I would love to learn from you and listen about what it's like to be a black guy in America. About what it's like to be a black guy in San Antonio. And then I was like, it was awkward. It was weird. And he was unbelievably gracious to me. And he said, that'd be great, man. I'd love to listen to you as well and learn from you as well. And Russ and I have been having lunch about every six weeks for about four years now. And uh, one of the great things about it is that he's shown me a whole side of our city that I would never have known as a white guy existed. And uh, because one of the things I said, we went to McAllister's. I'm going too deep into this, I know. We went to McAllister's and he's like, you realize I'm the only black guy in here, right? Can I take you to places where you're the only white guy? And I said, is the food good? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I was like, let's do it. And so we've done that a ton. And we've had a, ma- a lot of really amazing conversations. And this brother has, he's really honored me by opening up his life to me and sharing me with me about these things. Now, Russell and I are friends. We're two guys in a city of two million. And we're not going to probably solve racism in San Antonio but it's really helped me. It's helped me love people who don't look like me better. It's helped expose some of the darkness of my own heart. And it's helped me see what God is doing in the world in really a profoundly new way. And I had to have kind of an awkward conversation to get that going. But I would encourage you to consider doing something similar because that is what the church is. The church is a huge amalgamation of people from all different cultures and all different colors of skin and all different languages who have one thing primarily and fundamentally in common above all those other things, and that is Jesus loves them. Jesus loves them. And so let's rest in that unity and work towards justice in this topic, okay? Let me pray for us.